Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. This week, TJ and Sam dive into the decisions coaches have to make in games. From substitution patterns to managing player fouls, running set plays versus your motion, and fouling in end-of-game situations, they discuss their opinions and how coaches can figure out what's best for them and their team. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Hardwood Hustle. Today, Sam and I are going to have some fun. I think this will be an enjoyable one for you coaches. We're going to have a conversation about decisions coaches have to make during games. When I think about how many games we've coached, you know, Sam, for me, like in college games with scrimmages and everything else, I'm probably up near a thousand games coached in college. Um, on top of that, you know, I've coached my daughter's team. We've coached uh, a variety of different types of games. We've worked in just games that didn't count at PGC sessions. And you've coached thousands of games, too, with with all of, of your basketball experience in college and coaching uh, your travel teams with high school kids and middle school. We've, just, we've coached so many games. And we're going to talk about things that you have to decide in a game. Like, what would you do in this situation? We might have differing opinions on this. But we're going to go over just different situations that come up. And we'd love to hear from you, too, on different things that come up in games that you have questions about, coaches. But we're just going to popcorn back and forth different things that come up that we might have to make decisions on. And what would Sam do? What would TJ do? And we'd love to hear what you would do in a lot of these situations as well, coaches. So, Sam, let's start with a pretty simple, basic one. Uh, let's say a player gets two fouls. And um, you're in the you're in the first half of the game. So let's say in college it's a 20 minute game. They get two fouls. There's 10 minutes left in the first half, or they get two fouls in the first quarter of a high school game, and there's the second quarter left. Do you have a general philosophy? Does this vary from team to team? What what are you doing in that situation? Important player. Yeah, important player. The philosophy is keep playing. Two fouls don't mean anything to me. I see that happen all the time where they just sit on the bench for the rest of the game and then they finish the game with two fouls. Well, we just lost eight minutes or 10 minutes or six minutes of playing time from our best player. So kids got to learn how to play with fouls. There's going to be games where they got four fouls with five minutes to go. They got to learn how to play with fouls. So that's just a part of the game. Now, if they pick up two fouls in the first two minutes of a game, TJ, I'm going to pull them out settle them down, make sure their emotions are in check, and then they're going back in the game. Um, but two fouls don't really phase me in the first half. Yeah. For me, similar in the in the I think the number of times a kid would actually foul out is probably low and you probably will have played them less minutes. I would factor in time and score, you know, I mean I would say, gosh, let's just say that we're up 12 points. I would sit them and see how we do. You know, if that lead stays around 10, 12, 14 points, eight points or whatever, I might sit them and just make sure that I can get them through the second half, especially for late game execution. You know, somebody that's not typically in there. Um, but let's say that game's close. It's back and forth. You know, I'm not going to sit them that entire time. So I think time and score plays a little bit in the decision of whether you're going to put them back in the game or not. I think it's one of those games where you know it's going to be a close game. Both teams are evenly matched. They get their second foul, and there's a lot of time. Like, I'd much rather have them foul out and play their 24 minutes or whatever it is than 
gosh, they ended up the game with three fouls and I only played them 16 minutes and we lost by four. You know, I don't think that's a that's a really good analytic decision, knowing how the number of kids that foul out and when they foul out. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of things that factor. And also, do you have ways to hide them? You know, let's say it's your best player. Can you play a little bit of zone and hide them and keep them on the floor for offense? So I think there's a lot of factors that go in, but I think we generally agree um, that sitting them just because they have two for the second half is probably not analytically sound, probably not a good idea for the success of your team. So coaches, you may vary and differ on that, but Sam and I tend to agree on this one. And uh, Sam, let's move on to the second one. So let's talk about uh, the one everybody talks about all the time, like fouling um, when you're up three late in the game. And so what's your philosophy on that? Yeah, I, I love this discussion. I don't have a hard, fast rule here personally. Uh, a lot of it would depend time of the year. Have we, you know, early in the year, have we worked on it? Do I have an experienced team, an intelligent team that could carry it out if we haven't worked on it? Um, and then, you know, if it's late in the year. Yeah, so to answer the question, if we're up three in a pro and with fouls to give, I think that's what you're referring to. Um, let's say they're doing inline inbounds. You just hit a free throw and it's in line. Yeah, I wanna I wanna get a foul on their first or second dribble across half court to disrupt whatever they're trying to flow into. And I think that's the key there. But you have to practice foul, especially we got coaches that are coaching younger levels. If they some kids don't foul the right way and they end up getting intentional foul and you can lose the game that way. So you gotta practice this scenario and on how we're going to foul that's that would be my overall approach yeah I think it's a really interesting one I mean people some people are die hard on this that you have to get that foul I think you hit on a bunch of things that are really important have you worked on it because I've seen it go bad before with intentional fouls and things like that so have you worked on it um, I've lost a game where we didn't foul I mean they hit one right in front of half court and you know I mean how often does that happen but it was a 40 footer that they hit a sent it to overtime that we ended up losing in overtime. And I, I questioned that one many a times we hadn't worked on it. I think another thing factors in too sometimes is like your ability to rebound, you know, that whole, like they make the first one, miss the second one and get a tip in or something like that for a tie game. It's a harder thing to do than actually hit a three within the system. But you know, do you feel like your team's going to win that rebound? Do you feel like, I mean, I've had teams that haven't been great free throw rebounding team just because of size. And so that's factored into the decision. So I don't know that it's a hard and fast rule for me. I think based on each team, I do think it's a smart play if you've worked on it. If the clock is right, you know, let's say there's 14 seconds left in the game and you foul up three, there's still time for them to get multiple plays for you to go down there and miss a free throw and it'd be a two-point game. And so, you know, I think generally like under seven seconds is kind of one of those things where I feel like ah, it's probably more worth it than, you know, when you get into that 10, 12, 14, 16 second range. So I think you have to factor that in as well when you're thinking about when you do foul. And I, but I do think it is good for your team to know what you're going to do in that situation. No, not make a last second decision. Well, yeah, and let's distinguish here. Like, you know, late game, eight seconds left, you're up three. You have fouls to give, meaning when you foul, they're just going to inbound it. Then the 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 bigger, more controversial decision is you're actually putting them on the line, shooting one and one, right? And then it, yeah. it does come down, can we get the rebound? Because I've seen it play, I'd say more times than not, well, I look at it this way, TJ. If we're up three and we put them on the line to shoot one and one with 
1.2 seconds. More things have to go right for in that scenario than the other one where you don't foul. All that has to go right is they got to hit one shot, hit a three. Whereas you foul them, they've got to potentially hit the front end of a one and one or two. Then they've got to intentionally miss. So they got to make a free throw. They got to miss a free throw. That's two things. They got to get an offensive rebound, a third thing. And the fourth thing, they got to convert the offensive rebound to a score. So four things versus one. That's where, from an analytics, maybe you would say, okay, well, of course we want to foul, but all those things can happen too. And that's that either way, if you lose, you're going to beat yourself up. So that goes back to our, our, you know, Annie Duke, the thinking in bets. You know, do we, you know, the Russell Wilson interception against the Patriots? A lot of people said wrong decision. Well, analytics actually said Pete Carroll made the right decision. So it's, it's like you make the decision based on all the information. It's not a results. Resulting is when you make a decision and based on the result, you then go back and recalibrate your decision. You got to live with it on the front end. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I remember when we were on that call with Mike neighbors and Annie Duke and she was breaking down what happened in Seattle when they lost that Super Bowl. Like everyone thought he's crazy. Why did he not hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch or whatever? And based on analytics of the NFL, number of times that play is scored from the whatever two yard line or whatever, like passing was a better decision than actually running the ball. But he'll probably never live that down, even though analytically he made the right decision. And that's why it's you know difficult to be a coach sometimes, um, you know, because even if you make the right decision, it could go wrong. So there's no surefire, but you do got to know what you're going to do in that situation. Um, and Sam, feel free to popcorn any ones that you have. I got a third one here for us, like substitution patterns, like going into a game. I get this question quite often. Like, do you have predetermined substitution patterns? Do you play it by kind of feel and what you think needs in that game? I think that that a lot of times we see this in the NBA. Like there's a lot – and it's probably because they have an 82-game season, but they have a lot of set things. You know, most coaches in the NBA – they an automatic timeout after a certain run. If the other team goes on a 6-0 run, a 7-0 run, or an 8-0 run, it's a timeout. Like it's, You don't even have to look. Like One of the assistants can call it. It's just a hard and fast rule. They're going to call a timeout at this particular run. Um, the, the other one is like the substitution patterns. You know, you know you're going to play 82 games. You know the guys you got. And so we know Steph Curry's coming out with two minutes left in the first quarter. He's going back three minutes into the second quarter or whatever it might be. Do you believe in substitution patterns being predetermined, or do you think it's a it's a feel thing? And which one do you, which way do you lean? Well, I think you know I'm going to say yes if you give me either or. Like I, I like both, and I think both have to be used. I use a lot of preset substitution patterns, and it's based on my preparation going into the game, my own team, knowing my my team, KYP, know your people, know your personnel. And then also knowing who you're going against. And I don't know this for a fact, TJ. I think a lot of NBA coaches probably do that. I mean, it's a very stringent kind of substitution pattern, you know. And I think that's for the pros, like them being, you know, as a player, mentally know what's coming and being prepared for it. And there's some value. So I I sometimes go, not every time, because I want my players to be, um, adaptable, but I do go in a game and I'll, I'll tell them who's starting and I'll say, Hey, you, you, and you are going to go in here at the four minute mark in the first quarter and y'all need to be ready. 
And then I might tell another group, hey, you're going to be playing. If you want to go over here on the baseline or out, you know, in the tunnel over there and get a, if they, you know, haven't been in in a while, like go get loose. I'll sometimes do that. And then you also got it as a coach. So here's what I'm saying. The preset uh, pattern. Yes, I utilize that. Then also sometimes a game has, you know, things that happen and we got to adjust and adapt in, in split second and, and being prepared for that as well. Yeah, I probably go opposite of you on this. Not that I feel passionate about it, but like I, I have coached by gut a lot of times, like different players. And, and I do have signs that I look for, you know, like when a player doesn't sprint back in defensive transition, I just tell them that's an automatic sign we're coming to get you. Like that tells me you can't do it anymore. Um, and so we look for signs of when players might have fatigue. But I think about this a lot, too. I think it was Stan Van Gundy that said this, you know, if you want to win more games, keep your best players on the floor longer. And and so how how long is longer? Like how can how long can they perform at that rate? And, you know, I've seen it both ways where I look back and thought, man, I should have played so and so longer. And I've also looked back on it and said, gosh, I probably should have subbed, you know, just got him a minute or two here because of fatigue. But I, I do subscribe to keeping your best players on the floor. And it comes this cutoff. You know, if I take my best player and they can give me everything they got for 34 minutes, right? Like, and that's that's the best they got. Then I go down to that last six minutes. If I don't ever take them out, is the player backing them up better than them, can do better things than them for those six minutes when they're at their second best, when they're not quite at their at their peak. You know, I think that's an interesting thing that we have to constantly, you know, look into because there are certain players that even when they're not at full speed might be better than the player backing them up. Right. And there's other things to factor in there too, like team cohesion. And, but is it better for that one player who's busting their tail every day in practice to get those six minutes and to grow for the future, to grow, you know, to become a better player down the end of the season where there's six minutes or better and there's substitution. There's so many things to factor in and substitution patterns. And, uh, you know, even, you know, even execution, you know, like we have certain players in there that play, you know, better together, you know, what lineups play the the best together. Um, And that can that can be one of those things that can get lost if you just substitute by feel. So there's definitely benefits to both. Uh, And I've gone by feel a lot more than I have by predetermining, even though I kind of think through that before the game. So both is the answer for me, too. I probably go I'm going with my gut, but I kind of got an idea of some substitutions I want to make and your sounds more like you've got substitutions you want to make and then you'll adjust your gut if something doesn't feel right um, to you over the course of the game well yeah and age and stage matter a lot too right if you're in a developmental stage coaching where you know you do want to let players get in the game and play through mistakes and you might take an l in the process Uh, my question though is i do i do you know i feel this i think which is players i want to get Players who may play the game and be a part of us winning, either down the stretch, early, throughout the game, I want to get them in the action to get into a flow and feel a part of the game early. Um, and they may or may not be in on the stretch run, but at the college level, do you factor that in, who's your seventh man or eighth man who you know is going to play eight minutes a game? Do you want to get them in early to get a sweat and a feel and a flow in the game? knowing they may bring them out and they may not go in, you know, till 10 minutes left in the second half. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because, you know, 
it's like, how, how deep are you? You know, so when I look at our team this year, I'll just use an example. Like, I feel like we have six starters. And so I definitely want to get that person in there really early, you know, in seven through nine, I feel like are utility players that can add value to the team. They might get a minute here and there. So that sixth player that I feel like is a starter, I don't want to bury them. You know, let's just say we're playing well and I don't want to bury them too long. And all of a sudden I realize we're eight, 10 minutes in the game and they haven't got in there because I want to get them in the flow. Now the seventh, eighth and ninth, you know, who I think are more, they're clearly behind the first six, but they, they, they serve a role. And that that's one of those interesting things too, is like, when I've, we've talked about this before where seven, eight, nine or eight, nine and 10 or wherever your cutoff is, they're difficult because their minutes fluctuate. You know what I mean? Like number nine might be just a, a knockdown shooter and you're playing a team that plays a lot of zone. And all of a sudden they play 18 minutes that game. And then you play another game where they hug shooters and it's more you need some penetration. I'm just giving a generality, but but that game, they don't play as much. And I do think that the articulation, like talking to those people is important to let them know why they didn't play less or more because they could have played 18 minutes in the previous game against a zone and gone for 12 points. They hit four threes and the next game they're only playing three minutes. That's really confusing for a player. You know, like, what about, well, I just played 18 minutes and I played well. Why did I play four minutes in this game? And, and th- those are the players that I think you have to have the most conversations with. But, you know, I, I think it matters where that cutoff comes. Like, is it is it somebody I view as a starter? Is it somebody I, I, I view as a situational player? Um, I, I think that varies as to when you bring them in the game. Yeah, my, my last thought on this, and I think, I think you do this. I know you have in years past. You may have changed it this year. Y'all have had a lot of injuries, but – early in the season going to play a deeper bench and try to develop the bench some and get a feel for guys and what they do in the game and, and know what we're working with. And as we, we creep into later in the season, that, that bench gets a little shorter. You know, if if truly you have a, a clear distinction in top three or four players versus eight, nine, ten. Now, some, some years you got a really deep team. I'm coaching a couple teams right now where we go – one of my teams goes 10 deep and I feel really good at all five positions on backups. There is not much of a drop off. That is more of the exception than the rule probably for most coaches. But in that sense, like we're going to develop the bench early. And then as we go throughout the season, we get into playoff time, you know, that bench is going to get shortened. And then I just add lastly that I think this is where the communication from a coach matters a lot that you're telling those guys, Hey, I just got to be honest with you. I, I think your minutes could be limited. I don't know that for a fact, but I want you to be mentally prepared. You may not even play or you may play two minutes, but I need you to stay mentally engaged. You're still a big part of the team. That's just what might happen. I think a lot of coaches miss on that piece. Yeah, it's a good one. I got another one that's kind of personal to me. I don't know if other coaches struggle with this or not, but over the years of coaching, this one has been kind of like, a, ah, I don't know the right thing to do, uh, specifically on the offensive end. So when you come out and you start a game, you know, you scouted a team and maybe you feel like you can get a couple easy buckets in a particular way. And, you know, we might call a set play the first three or four possessions. And let's say we get three buckets out of four possessions or at least like three or four really good looks out of it because we feel like there's something that's going to be good against them. Well, it's nice to start the game off some confidence and get a couple easy buckets, right? I mean, who doesn't want to do that? But one of the things that I've noticed over time with my teams is that if we do go get those couple of easy buckets, once I stop calling stuff, 
and we go to our base offense, we get kind of stagnant because we're relying on we got those easy ones, right? And vice versa. Sometimes if we go into a game and we just start in the flow and we don't call a lot of stuff, you know, players got to figure it out. We might take a couple bad shots early on and then we kind of settle in a little bit. And then the sets come in a little bit later can either be a value add or it can kind of get us out of our rhythm. I wonder if you have any philosophy and I'd love to hear what coaches think out there of like, gosh, how much do I utilize sets versus how much do I not utilize sets? And I know that there's some teams, some coaches philosophies, like we're not running sets. We're just going with what we do. I get that. I understand that. And there's some teams that are really heavy set where they're going to run a ton of them. Right. I I think that I, I prefer not to run a lot of sets. But I also know that through scouting and stuff, we're capable of getting our team a few easy buckets. So I hate not to get those easy buckets, too. So, you know, a general philosophy and what coaches think of, do I call sets early? Do I save them for late? Do I not call them? I don't have to at all. Or, man, I want to ensure my team gets the shots because I feel this a lot of times. I want to put the responsibility in my players. I want them to be able to execute the offense and know how to hunt stuff. I also know, despite how much we practice, and having college guys that have been through a lot of basketball, that we can go through some really dry spells where we don't make the right decisions. You know, we go do something that works well for us and we can just get away from it really fast. And before you know it, four or five possessions get away from you and that can be a run for the other team. So how much how much do we rely on sets? How little do we call sets? And I know this is an age stage thing as well. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Three things come to mind for me on this this topic, which is, you know, I like to run set plays just to be a starter into our motion based offense of reading, reacting to, you know, with the ball in our hands and playing off. So I like set plays for that reason, just for a starter to ignite the offense. Uh, number two, I want to run some stuff to see how they're going to defend it. You know, at the college level with the scouting, high school level, you're going to have a good idea how teams guard a ball screen or how they card you know, some screen to screener actions or whatever actions it is that you run. Um, but also you want to run it and see what they do. And then early in the game, you're kind of cataloging that in your brain. So you could go back to it later. Like, how are they? Are they going to hard hedge us? Are they going to trap us? Are they going to switch these screens? And then we can go back and expose it later. And then the third thing, TJ, which I imagine with your current team, this is important for you. Like, we're going to run some stuff for our best player. You know, I'm coaching a kid right now who's our best player, but he doesn't – he's a very unselfish kid, and sometimes I need to run a play, and the play is go score. Like, go attack the rim, or, or you're going to shoot it. And it almost gives him that freedom that otherwise he's just a little bit more passive. So those those are three big ones for me on, like, why set plays are a part of what we're going to do. Yeah, that's a good one. <clears throat> Rattle off a couple more here. Going into a game, <clears throat> how much coaching do you do in a game? You know, I, I think this is a really interesting one, which I, I think coaches should have a philosophy going into this. But I, I've heard this said a lot of times and definitely been guilty of this, no doubt. But you go through, players are making mistakes, things are happening, and you just see a lot of in-game coaching. 
And there's all of these things that you have to like get into a player. Like you're not doing this. You didn't do this. You get mad about all these different things versus I think some coaches have a philosophy of like, we did our coaching in practice. Now they need to go play the game and I can overcoach. And if I overcoach, things are going to go bad. And so generally as I've gotten older, I've been a coach that would like to do all my work in practice so that we're prepared. And I know I'm going to have to make in-game adjustments. I know that we're going to have to talk through certain things. We you know, occasionally have to talk about shot selection and stuff like that. But I prefer not to be um, over coaching, making adjustments and all the different things in the game that we haven't covered off in practice. And I would like to say, gosh, if we just aren't doing this, it's because we haven't done it well enough in practice. That's why we're not doing it in the game versus I think coaches sometimes go in with like, I'll just coach whatever I see, which if you were to look back on it with every coach, everything you see, you know, Hey, you're not holding your follow through. Hey, we're not taking screen. There's so many things. We're not talking on these screens. We're not, whatever it might be. I mean, that's a reflection of practice. It's hard to swallow, you know, like it's feedback for you as a coach. Like we're not getting this done in practice because it's not carrying over. But do you have a general philosophy going into a game of like, gosh, I'm going to stay away from certain things of coaching or I'm just going to coach whatever I see. I think one, one philosophy is limit myself. The tendency is to coach a lot. And I would say just limit myself. So I think of it like this TJ, where I know in the first half, my guys, the team I'm coaching is going to be on defense where I can coach them up. Right. The second half, they're going to be on offense and, I think a lot about that, number one. That's the first thing. And if it's early in the season defensively with rotations or p- positioning on help side, especially at a younger age, like I'm coaching them up a lot. I look at it as an extended practice, an extended practice. So I'm, I'm literally treating it a lot like I would practice other than I can't blow the whistle or stop them. So I'm just coaching them on the fly, but I'm not teaching them. And that's an important distinction like, if you read uh, Doug Lamov's book, you know, 42 uh, was, oh, practice perfect, excuse me. And like giving live feedback, it's hard to process. So I'm not like saying TJ, you know, and coaching or teaching you new things. I'm just reminding you, hey, get in the gap, get in the mud, you know, uh, down the stance. Let's talk things that just trigger them to do. So that's more just like reminders on the fly. But I think all good coaches or a lot of good coaches want to become less important as the year goes on. So, like, if I'm having to coach them through every defensive possession late in the year, we're probably not doing very good in practice. We're probably not, you know, growing. Uh, But overall, I try not to coach in-game or teach in-game, let me say that, during timeouts, TJ, during end of quarters. That's where I do my teaching. We're not we're not on live play at that point. So that's a generally how I think about it. Yeah, I, I think just being mindful as coaches, like I think it makes us feel better when we're out there telling them everything to do and trying to fix everything in the moment. I think there's just a lot of data out there that just says that's not really that good. I mean, kind of like the post game speech of a, after the game when you meet with your team and you tell them the 14 things you did wrong. Like they're probably not in a place to hear it. Processes it's not going to make a difference. But when you go back and watch it on film, work on it and practice, it will make a difference. And I, I think coaches just being mindful of that. 
that, I think it can be a pretty big mistake. You know, I mean, even like coaching a shooter in the middle of a game, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. Like it's a lot of feedback coming to a shooter when they probably need to have a clear mind. And, and I think you can oftentimes do more damage than help when you're doing a lot of that teaching, like you said, you know, versus coaching. I mean, there's a level of encouragement and challenge. And, you know, the other day uh, in a game we had this weekend, and I think we were up like three or four in the second half on a team we just were playing a little stagnant against and you know I called him over and you know I ripped into him pretty good and and because we needed to get going and uh after the game my wife told me it was about time she said I'm getting a lot softer in my old age as far as pushing those teams but uh but there's times when it's like you know I wouldn't I wouldn't consider that like uh you know that's one of those energy things passion things like occasionally you got to get a team fired up or maybe calm a team down or whatever it might be but I think in general just being an emotional wreck and and, and fly by the seat of your pants every moment bring something different. You're not real stable. You're not real consistent. I think that's that's really hard for players to grasp and to really be at their peak when you're inconsistent across the board on a regular basis. And I think leading into the next one, very similar, like philosophy on officials, um, definitely something I've had to work at over my career, you know, because you want to win, you're competitive and you get there. And I, I think I have gotten a lot better. I've asked officials for feedback on how I do. And have I gotten better at this actually? Um, because I, I do think it makes a difference how you approach officials. And I think it's good to have a general philosophy, you know, with, I, I would say nowadays there's times I get emotional a couple times a game, but before I think I hung on every play. And I gave the officials too much feedback, you know, you know, that was a travel, that was a reach, that was what, you know, and you just keep going at them and at some point it becomes numb to them and probably a little bit of a lack of respect on on my part when I kind of overdo it like that. But my general philosophy is to coach my team. You know, I got that feedback from an official many years ago. We were down 19 at a halftime in a conference championship game. And he said, hey, you know, you're a hell of a coach. Too bad you're not coaching your team. And it stung. Because I was on the officials. I was so emotionally wrapped up in the game. And that second half, I went back and I coached my team. We came back and won a conference championship down 19 at the half. And it was one of those turning points for me as a coach. Like, I am spending too much time on the officials. I think healthy dialogue with the officials and occasional there, you know, talking through and maybe even disagreeing with a call. But I think how you do it and your handling of officials, I do think it matters. And I do think you have to predetermine that before you go into a game. What do you think about that, Sam? Coaches need to chill out on officials. That's what I think. Um, they're, they're there to officiate the game. And are there bad ones? Absolutely. Are there officials that come in and they have a vested interest in who wins the game? 99% of the time, no. And so let them do their job is what I think. And what I how I approach officials, I coach a lot of games, man, like, See, every, every, I see young officials, old officials, good ones, bad ones, everything in between. And what I try to do, TJ, is build a rapport. Like, let them know I'm, I'm with you. I'm on your side. Hey, you, you know, even before the game, and I mean it, like, hey, if any of my guys or my, these girls are giving you problems, you know, you let me know. They're, they're, they're here to play the game, not, not help you officiate. Um, but I think coaches get way too involved, like you said, way too emotional. And what happens is, like, here's the other thing. You're the officials doing your game. There's a good chance they're going to do multiple games of yours this year. So it'd be good interest to build a relationship because you want to have a dialogue with them. And if they feel like you can talk to them and we can have normal conversation, I have found like 
they're going to be on your side and work with you. I had an official coming to me after yesterday's game. And in this game, the other coach, the assistant coach got teed up. The head coach got teed up of the other team. They were beating us by like 10 at the time, but we were battling and fighting and they were getting frustrated. And the coach came or referee is a very veteran official comes up to me after the game. He said, Hey, I, I, he like passed me on the chest. I really respect, you know, the way you're running your program and, and, and how y'all are doing things. And, you know, that means a lot. It, 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 he means like you're being respectful. Like the other team is being disrespectful. You can disagree with an official and be respectful. Last thing, last thing. The only time I'll get upset with an official is if they disrespect the game, meaning they have a carefree attitude. They're not even trying. That's when I will get a little bit hot and might be more aggressive. Other than that, 99% of the time, I don't say a word to the officials, you know, other than to get a, an understanding of the call. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's certain little pet peeves that probably push me over, you know, when I feel like an official's making it about them, when I feel like officials not giving great effort, you know, which I, I don't think happens that often. But when that happens, then I that's probably one of those pushes me a little farther than I need to go. And And again, I don't think it happens that often, but occasionally you feel that way. And I think that um, you know, you have to be probably predetermined on how you're going to handle that as well. Cause if you don't, you let your emotions take over, which I kept tons of mistakes where I've done that, where my emotions have taken over and there's regret, you know, involved in that. So I do think we have to be careful of that. Hey, last thing I know, gosh, we could go on forever about these, but, uh, one of the things I was thinking about in-game coaching is, do you take care of everything that's going to happen in a game before it actually happens, like the regular things. So, for instance, do you know what you're going to do in warm-ups? Do you know how you're going to exit from halftime? Do you know what you're going to do when you come back out of halftime? Do you know the roles of your assistant coaches and what they're looking for in the game? Like, there's so many of the lists, and I think it's important for coaches to make a list to get them out of your brain, to get them off of your mind, that you already know how you're going to handle it, whether it's the national anthem, introductions, um, you know, timeouts, 30 second timeouts, full timeouts, who's getting water, who's tracking fouls, what's each assistant coach's job? What about some players on the end of the bench, managers? Tra- like there's so many logistical things that go into a game that honestly, if you don't take care of it beforehand and you don't have a plan can actually distract you during a game. And so, you know, it would just be like a final recommendation for coaches, like have a checklist of all of the things that happen on a regular basis and have everybody have their roles. And that way you can focus on the game. I see so many times coaches get distracted with things that they don't need to be distracted with. And I think you'd be a better coach if you got all those things down on a list, delegated those responsibilities. No, everybody knows their roles. I think you'd be more efficient. Your team would be more efficient and you could focus on the things that matter the most more. Yeah, all those are great points. That, that's probably an episode of itself. You're essentially saying systematize your processes, take out decisions on, on all the little things because there are so many decisions you have to make. Like recently, you know, and you have slippage, okay? We have a, we have a timeout management um, protocol, meaning our one through five, like when I'm sitting facing the players and during a timeout on the bench – my one is to my left and go two, three, four, five positionally. And then we typically have players standing behind them. But recently, TJ, we, we were having like, I'm trying to give information and guys are still getting their water bottles. And, you know, some teams you have tons of managers. So like 
we had to get a water bottle or water management system in place because it was slowing down our process. That's just one example. TJ listed off a bunch of them, but I think coaches that are listening, this is really critical to you streamlining your process, taking away these little decisions, allow you to keep the main thing, the main thing during a game. Yeah. Well, coaches, there's just a few. I mean, we know there's hundreds of decisions you got to make throughout a game, but I think the the better you can get at identifying these and predetermining the decisions you're going to make and, um, you know, getting better at evaluating the decisions you're going to make, the better coach you're going to become, you know. And so you go into the game and you've done this before, you've learned from it, gained experience. You know, I think that's a really important thing. So we just want to bring a few of those to light. I hope you enjoyed this episode. hope it made you think of some things. We'd love to hear some things we didn't talk about that you think about. Hit us up at hardwood underscore hustle and let us know some things that you think coaches need to value or, or prepare for over the course of the season so that when they go into games they're ready for those things so hey, he is sam i am tj we are the hardwood hustle thanks for tuning into this episode of the hardwood hustle where we believe in the value of a coach we want to bring you quality content and journey with you stay connected with us on twitter and instagram you can find us at hardwood underscore hustle From the Harvard Hustle team, thanks again. We can't wait to be with you again next week.